Revelation chapter 19, this morning with God's help, we will be considering a word from chapter 19 and verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. After these things, I heard something like a sound, something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. This is the word of the Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading of it. And now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray together. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, <clears throat> be with us now as we consider the, the depths of your immense and in, infathomable, infinite glory. Help me, Lord, help us to at least, Lord, catch some of the rays of your great, of your great light. Enable our minds to understand. Enable our hearts, Lord, to, to burn with love. And Lord, help us to see these things, delight in them, and live in light of them with great joy for your glory. I decrease that you may increase. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, saints. I greet you once more in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week, we considered the four hallelujahs at the judgment of the harlot and the consummation of the kingdom of God. If you recall, our first point focused on the first verse, wherein the great multitude in heaven praised the Lord for his salvation in the midst of judgment. The citizens of heaven ascribe to the Lord glory, which is manifested by his power in salvation. Power to save predestined ones. After that sermon, I had some very interesting conversations. But even more than that, I think, I had some very long moments of contemplation. Those moments of contemplation were mostly over the word glory, specifically the glory of God. Uh, my long contemplations may be the result of my former tradition, and maybe because I recall the perpetual misuse of the word glory and the misuse of the phrase and doctrine of the glory of God. It also may be, my long contemplations may be, because I probably have not spent as much time as I should thinking about, contemplating, reflecting on the glory of God. This morning then, with God's help, and I am indebted to uh, Julius Santiago and Pastor Isaiah um, for help on this sermon. This morning, with God's help, I would like to consider the glory of God. And do so this morning with three points. Number one, the glory of God ad intra. 
the glory of God ad intra or within God. The glory of God ad intra or within God. Uh, we are we are using Revelation 19:1 as kind of our launching pad for this uh, sermon. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. So each point will kind of begin with that. Before I begin, let me say that even my best attempts and the best attempts of theologians to capture the essence of the glory of God will always fall short. What I present this morning is far from the greatest human attempt. It is far from the most sophisticated attempt. But with God's help, um, we together, I believe, shall adore that about God which we cannot comprehend. So then, what is glory? Last week we learned of a literal definition of the word itself. Glory is translated literally as weightiness. Glory is weightiness or heaviness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light affliction, which is built for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Weight of glory. Glory is... Weightiness. Theologians make a distinction between the one God's acting within the divine three persons and the one God's acting outside of the divine three persons as first, inside, opera ad extra. Or operations of the eternal, I'm sorry, operations of the internal works of God. Opera ad intra, or operations of the internal works of God. And secondly, opera ad extra, or the operations of the external works of God. When attempting to get a sense of the glory of God, what is it? We begin with the first, the opera ad intra, the internal, internal operations within the divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So then we proceed with, well, what is the divine life of the eternal persons? What is it like? We know that we are flying really close to the sun now, don't we? It is an existence of absolute glory within God. Weightiness, heaviness, Within God, the opera ad intra of God is this. It is his own blessedness. What is the divine life within the persons of the Trinity like? It is. It is blessedness. That means that within God, here's what it means. He has fullness of being. Theologians use the word plentitude of being. Fullness of being or plentitude of being, which means this. He is fully, plentifully blessed within himself. Fully, plentifully blessed within himself. Plentitude or fullness of being is related to everything ad intra within God 
and he is perfectly blessed, listen to this, within himself. This is the glory of God. He is perfectly blessed within within himself. It's an interesting way to describe the glory of God within himself, though, isn't it? To say, what is the glory of God? It is God being blessed within himself. God is perfectly blessed within himself. He has plentitude of being. Well, what does that mean? It means that he knows his own infinite value and takes delight in it. It means that he knows his own infinite goodness and takes supreme delight in that. God's glory is God eternally, internally, eternally and internally being blessed within himself. It is God knowing and, listen to this word, loving his own essence. God is finding supreme delight, supreme love and joy within himself. That is the glory of God. Now, it, it should be weird for us because we're creatures. We, we don't understand things in, ter- in those terms. God does not look outside of himself to find blessedness. He has plentitude of being. He's not in search of glory in order to fill up something within him that is lacking. He has fullness of being. He is blessed within himself. God does not need anyone, you nor I, to ascribe weightiness to him in order for him to know his own weightiness. God doesn't need someone to um, highly value him in order for him to know that he is most valuable. God doesn't need anyone to tell him how good he is in order for him to know that he is infinitely good and even better than our human words can describe. Listen to this. We try with our words to describe just how good God is, and God can actually describe how good he is. He... He knows how good he is. And we're still trying to come up with words that, that, that somehow, some way, capture that. God knows the fullness of that. That's the glory of God. He knows his own goodness and has perfect knowledge of that goodness that is eternally satisfying to him. That is, a, that is eternally satisfying to him. That's the glory of God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are blessed within themselves, the persons. That's hard for us, again, to wrap our minds around. It may be, no, it should be something that we cannot even relate to. It should be something that we cannot even relate to because we do not have fullness of being, do we? We are in the midst of becoming We are drawing from things to be what we presently are not. We are in movement to become full, but we are constantly in lack. We are dependent upon other things to fill us up where we lack. We don't have plentitude of being nor fullness of being. Things temporarily give us a sense that we have attained fullness of being, don't don't they? Things sometimes do that for us. Drinks. Food, moments of joy gives us give us these these brief moments of fullness, but they, they quickly fade. But the one who constantly fills us up, because we are in need of him to do so, is God. 
who is in need of no one to fill him up. He is perfectly blessed within himself. God fills us up where we lack and does us on a continual basis. You know the verse well, Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, listen to this, to be conformed to the image of his Son. We are not yet what we shall be. We are being assimilated, conformed to the, to the divine persons. But the divine persons are not being conformed and they are not being assimilated. No one is conforming God to God. God who is who he infinitely is and will be. We are being conformed. We do not have fullness of being. God does. It's the glory of God. He possesses eternally fullness or plentitude of being. Ad intra, within the persons, there is perfect blessedness. We get inklings of this perfect blessedness in the ways, in, in things that Christ describes. L- listen to this. In John 15, our Lord says, these things I have spoken to you, listen to what he says, so that my joy, something that Christ possesses eternally, may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Christ eternally has fullness Christ, the Son of God, the eternal word, has fullness of joy. Within the persons, ad intra, there is fullness of joy. Christ says that if you are in him, you will have that which is eternally his, fullness of joy. Christ has fullness of joy and offers it to you, but it is something that he has eternally had. And and when he gives it, he loses none of it. Um, when God eternally, when God gives something to his creatures, he loses nothing from himself. Also, neither does he gain anything. If he has fullness and plentitude of being, it can't be taken away, nor can it be added to. It is that perfect joy that the the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have ad intra before the creation of the world, which we're going to get to in our second point. Jesus says in John 14, peace I leave with you, but listen to what he says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you do I give, so let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Within the persons there is no trouble and there is no fear. There is perfect peace. There is joy within the persons. There is peace within the persons. This is the glory of God at intra. It is perfect blessedness. Christ promises to give peace, not like the world gives. It's only a peace that can be found in the divine persons, which they have had eternally. In John 17, Christ prays in his high priestly prayer, and in his humanity, makes a request to the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with the glory with which I had with you before the world began. Among men, Christ did not receive glory that was due to him. But he speaks of glory which he, the Father and Spirit, eternally share within the persons. A perfect blessedness that he did not have in his humanity, but never leaves in his deity. 
that in his humanity he will join with that deity in, in glory and that that will be what it always has been, perfect blessedness. Not here on earth, but there would be perfect blessedness as humanity is joined with the Father. Consider this, the beatific vision. It is that moment when we shall be given grace with the vision of God. It is that ultimate direct self-communication of God to the creature wherein we shall gaze upon God. And when we do, we will have the fullest and most complete sense of what he eternally is. And that will continue to to multiply for eternity. We will gaze upon the one who is glorious when we are glorified. When we speak about the glory of God and his value without limit, his honor without boundaries, his perfection without flaw and goodness without lack that God eternally is, that God is perfectly blessed within himself, that that he is within him fullness of joy, fullness of love, fullness of goodness, fullness of blessedness within himself, that he lacks no good thing, that he is has perfect knowledge of his own weightiness, we will gaze upon that and we will be blessed. We will have a sense, we will be like him, we will share something that he eternally has. God knows his own limitless value. Listen to this. And loves above all himself. That may seem strange, but God loves the highest good. God loves the greatest of perfection. God loves the most holy and most glorious. And there can be nothing else that fits that criteria than God himself. God knows himself and God loves himself more than any other thing. We know that God is love. God did not need something to love before he was declared to be love. God loved within himself. He is eternally love. Augustine reasoned that God must be loved within himself at intra. Because before he created the world, he was love. The Father is the one who loves. The Son is the one who is loved. And the Spirit is that love that flows between them and the love that binds them together. This perfect love is perfect blessedness, which is the glory of God. We must be careful that we don't allow, I must be careful that I don't allow charismatic or Pentecostal remnants of my past to creep into our thinking about the glory of God. The glory of God is not light per se. The glory of God is not sparkling dust from air vents. The glory of God is not a feeling per se. God has a glory that is entirely peculiar to himself. And it's taught throughout the word of God. When Deuteronomy 7 and Nehemiah 1 and Psalm 47 declare that God is great, not in mass, but in majesty of perfection, that's glory. When Isaiah 12, Jeremiah 10, and Daniel 11 declare the infinity and greatness of God, that is glory. 
When Deuteronomy 5 and Psalm 8 declare that God is glorious and marvelous, that is glory. When Psalm 135 exalts the magnificence of God above all, that is glory. When Psalm 48 and Exodus 15 sing that God is praiseworthy and greatly to be praised, saints, that is glory. By all these things, God is to be, to be declared the God of glory. All of these things are eternally and internally perfect within God. Now, that is probably the most basic um, presentation of the glory of God at intra. Now, may God help us to consider the glory of God at extra. Number two, the glory of God at extra or the external works of God. Again, our launching pad is uh, Revelation 19, and we're using from verse 1 glory as our launching pad for this sermon. It is the opera ad extra works of God, or the external operations of God that we might um, more readily identify with. When we talk about the internal works of God, the the works of God ad intra, um, we are kind of left with our jaw hanging on the floor because it is hard for us to comprehend and to identify with. When it comes to the operations at extra, um, we're a little bit more engaged. They are, why? Because they are glorious things by which God manifests or reveals or unveils, I love that word, his glory. It's the way in which God unveils his glory to creation. Uh, Aquinas, citing Augustine and others, declare, describes glory as the manifestation of goodness. What is um, glory ad extra? It's the manifestation of goodness to, of, to, to oneself, to another, of oneself, to another, to few or to many. Well, what is the glory of God ad extra? It's God showing his goodness to everyone else. God knows that he is eternally and internally good. The goodness of God or the glory of God at extra is God showing that to his creation. Uh, you will recall from my sermon on the reason for the incarnation. The reason for the incarnation was a, a manifestation of the goodness of God. Why did God become man? One of the reasons is to show how good God is. In paraphrasing Aquinas, it is the essence of goodness to reveal itself. God is supremely good. And it is of his supreme goodness, his supreme good essence, not to withhold his goodness, but to share his goodness. That's what good things do. They don't keep it to themselves. They give. The goodness reveals his eternal blessedness, which is his glory. And his glory is increased. Now listen to this. Not from the perspective of the divine. He is full of grace without increase or decrease. But his glory increases from the, the perspective of the creature or creation. When God reveals his glory, our senses, our sense of how awesome God is, of how he is of infinite value, um, his eternal weightiness, our sense of how grand God is, is heightened. We give glory to God. Therefore, it is increased, but not from the side of the divine, from the side of the creature. We say God is glorious as he reveals his goodness. 
Aquinas will also say that glory is public knowledge of someone's goodness. Um, meaning this, that when God reveals his goodness, he in a sense goes public with his glory. He goes and says, here's how good I am. Creation is given a clear recognition of the goodness of God. Now, add extra. In what way? Um, how has God externally shown his goodness? How has he made manifest his goodness or unveiled his goodness to creation? First, by creation. These are going to be some subpoints, okay? So number two, subpoint one. God reveals his goodness by creation. When God said, let there be light, it was it was God revealing his goodness to creation. How do we know this? At the end of each of the days of creation, God declares or concludes what? It is good. Creation is good. It is a good manifestation of his eternal goodness, which is his glory. Each day was a manifestation of the glory of God, his goodness creation. Saints, God was under no obligation to create, to create anything nor anyone. And yet, because it is the essence of goodness to reveal itself, God eternally decreed to create. Psalm 19, if you would actually turn to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 19, the scriptures say, the heavens are telling or declaring of the glory of God. The heavens are doing this. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day, they pour forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. The psalmist will go on to say, Creation doesn't actually speak words. But when we gaze upon the beauty of creation, it is but a glimpse of the beauty and goodness of God, which is his glory. Creation doesn't need to say a word. By gazing upon it, you see how good and glorious God is. Secondly, or sub-point two, God shows his goodness by creating man. God made man in his image. In the image of God, man was made. God unveils his goodness to creation, but especially to man, because man is uniquely made in the image of God. Man is given a reasonable soul so that he would know God and be blessed in the knowledge of God. Why were you created, dear ones? For God's glory. So that we might know his goodness and praise him in light of the knowledge of him. Uh, um, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and revenge will cease. Listen to this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? What is man that you take thought of him, that that you would even make us? Who am I? And the son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. And then he concludes with this, a proper response in light of the goodness of God, the glory of God, the infinite weightiness of God. The most appropriate response is this. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Considering the weightiness of God, 
considering the infinite value of God and the goodness of God, the proper response in light of, of being exposed to the glory of God is this. Praise Him. How, how awesome are you? Uh, how majestic is your name in all the earth? You didn't have to make me. But you did. I could have been a sheep or an oxen or a donkey, but you made me a human being with a reasonable soul. Not that those things are bad, but you've made me higher than them. Thirdly, God reveals his goodness in his word, especially in the glorious gospel, which is appropriately called by by Paul in Second Corinthians, the glorious gospel. Man willingly dove into sin. Uh, man chose enmity with God. Because he believed a lie, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will what? Be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan promised Adam glory. And Adam sought his own glory and failed to attain it. He was not allowed to exalt his throne above the throne of God. He falls short of the glory of God and takes all his posterity with us. Therefore, all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 But praise be to God. That God reveals his goodness, which is his glory to man made in his image through the glorious gospel, his word in which he proclaims, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your, your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. God, through his word, does not stop unveiling his goodness and his glory to man, but does so through the glorious gospel, preached through patriarchs, apostles and even prophets and even in the law. For the law tells us that we cannot, we cannot achieve this. You must look somewhere else outside of yourself. Where do we look? Fourthly, God reveals his supreme goodness, which is his glory in the incarnation of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the verse well, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Verse 14. And, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And, and what did we see when God wrapped himself in flesh? What did we see? We saw his glory, John says. We saw his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What did people see when the word assumed our flesh? They saw the glory of God displayed in the goodness of God, who took on our flesh in order to heal us from our sins. Christ did not come to destroy us. Praise be to God for that. When God takes on human flesh, assumes our flesh. He doesn't come to destroy. He comes to save. He comes to seek and to save that which was lost. Praise be to God. It's the goodness of God. God is ad extra revealing his goodness to man. We, when God arrives in the day of the Lord, should have destroyed, been destroyed. But God instead decrees to save. The glory of God in Christ is not his physical beauty. There are some very beautiful um, so-called pictures of Christ. They they um, depict Christ as being lovely and comely in his features. But Isaiah tells us that he had no beauty or majesty that would attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The glory of Christ was not his earthly wealth. It was not his physical beauty. It was not his earthly wealth. For the Son of God had no place to lay his head. Not in his political rule. For his kingdom was not of this world. But the glory of Christ was displayed and that he was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. He is full of grace and truth. He forgives the paralytic for his sin. He forgives the woman caught in adultery for their sin. 
He cures the leper. He gives sight to the blind and raises the dead. He is full of grace. He displays the glory of God in that he is full of truth. He corrects the misinterpretation of those religious leaders who were saying or misleading people by the, the false teaching of the law. He would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he teaches as one who has authority, not like the religious leaders. He does not remove or abolish the law and the prophets, but fulfills them. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is full of grace and he is full of truth because he is the wisdom of God. He is the perfect spoken word of God, encompassing the wisdom of God revealed in the truth that he spoke without error. No one could contend with Christ. Uh, They came to a point where they stopped challenging and stopped asking him questions. And the pinnacle of grace and truth was displayed on the cross of Calvary. And Christ, who was full of grace and truth, said to all who would believe in him that they would have life. And that through his death and resurrection, he would bring many sons to glory. From the cross, Christ did not cease to utter truth. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The cry of dereliction was also a cry of victory of Psalm 22. He is full of grace and full of truth. This is revealed in the Son of God, the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Um, when we think of glory, we often connect it to light. It, it's just bright light. That's taken from 1 John 1.5, God is light. And there is no darkness in him. But John is not saying that God is light. Or else light would be God. John is not saying light is God. Or else God would be light. Therefore, every time we turn on a light, we would say, God, there you are. John is making a contrast between living life righteously, which is a metaphor for walking in the light. And living life unrighteously, which is a metaphor of walking in the darkness. Darkness is not sinful because God created darkness and said it was good. But rather walking in sin is comparative compared to walking about with no light to which you would fall down. Which is what sin causes people to do, stumble. Believers can't say, is what John's saying, can't say they walk with Christ if they can, or God, if they continue to walk in sin, because that is walking in darkness. It's stumbling about. But if we walk upright, we figuratively speaking, walk in the light, where you can see sin and turn from it. Christ is the light of the world, figuratively. He is the path that keeps one from destruction. But concerning light, Van Maastricht says, it's not so much light that dazzles the eyes, but a light that dazzles your mind to cause you to see how grand and weighty and valuable God is. That's the metaphor of light. You see how grand he is. The weightiness of God, the heaviness of God reveals the glory of God. With which creatures are confronted when God reveals his goodness. The response of the creature should be praise and glory to God. Fifthly, God reveals his glory in giving the person of the Holy Spirit. The Lord promised in John, uh, to John, in, to John, the Lord promised that he would give in the book of John, that he would give the Holy Spirit who would be helper and comforter for the saints. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. 
He is not a fire. He's not tongues. He is love. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds or spirates from mutual love of the Father and Son. He has been given, along with Father and Son, to act upon our will. The most notable act of the love of the Holy Spirit is to move our will. It's to change our will and move it toward righteousness to love God. This is, this is how you know that you're loved by God. You've been given the Holy Spirit, who is love, that causes you to do what? Be moved to love God. He acts upon the will so that we would do good. The good follows, that follows is a pursuit of holiness that is instructed by God upon our minds. God moves us. Romans 5, 5, the love of God, charity of God is poured forth into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What is the fruit of the Spirit? What does it begin with? Love. And all things that flow from that, joy and peace and patience, are the add extra works of God that He reveals as His goodness and glory. It all flows from love. Love is the Holy Spirit. There's so much more that can be said on these things. Sixthly, and finally, God reveals His glory in what we have been discussing in Revelation, and I won't spend time here, but in salvation and, and in judgment. God is glorified. He shows his goodness in both of them. It is good when God judges and it is good when God saves. Saints, why do we need to know this? Um, I, I, I appreciate when Pastor Isaiah, when I will give him an idea of a sermon, he'll go, that's good. Why does that, why, why, why does that matter? Why, does it, why do I need to know that? Let's deal with this last point. Why? And you can even just, why? <laughs> why do I need to know these things? Because God has made you. And he's made you for him and not just for yourself. And for his glory. Why are you here for him? Why has he made you for his glory? Why do you breathe the way that you do and, and, and walk the way that you do and, and are attentive the way that you do? Because God has made you to glorify him. That's why you should be listening right now, especially. God's made you to know him and to find joy and pleasure in his goodness, which is his glory. As you are growing in him, your love for him will increase. Therefore, the glory in your side, in your sight for him of him will increase. Not from God's side, but from your side. You will continue to see him infinitely valuable. Um. Saints, if you have at this point in your life, if you have begun to see God in a decreasing, in, a, in an increasingly less valuable way, something's wrong with you. You should be increasing your your um, your view of the infinite value and glory of God should be ever increasing, not ever decreasing. And if it's ever decreasing, something's wrong with you. Uh, something's wrong with your soul. If you become less and less amazed by God, and let me say this, and especially when we gather to worship, if you are less and less amazed, check your soul. 
Because nothing's wrong with God. Your will by the Spirit of God has been bent to love Him. And that love must increase the more that you know Him. Years ago, I was taught that sermons should be understood at a fourth grade level. That a fourth grader should be able to understand these sermons. I reject that idea. And I was encouraged the other day, I was listening to a sermon by R.C. Sproul. And he said that he was taught in seminary that sermons should be taught at an eighth grade level. And his response was, uh, in, in the way that only R.C. could say, that's ridiculous. That's why the church is so immature. Because we want our gatherings to just be a youth group gathering. No, we're talking. Why should you know these things? Because we're talking about God. The God who made you. Gregory of Nazianzus says that theology, the study of God, it's a serious undertaking. It's not a subject like any other. And Gillian Emery notes that when we study things like the glory of God or the Trinity, it's an exercise of contemplative wisdom and a work of purification, of, of understanding based upon the revelation of God. You've heard words that maybe you've never heard before today. Good for you. You should constantly be growing in your vocabulary. Don't come to church and say, I'm just a simple man and I need a simple sermon. You're going to stay a simpleton then. We want to increase and grow in our understanding of God so that we might delight in him even more. God has given you faith. And now with that faith, seek reason, seek understanding, even if you're not fully able to understand it. That's okay. Knowing the glory of God will increase your view of God and your infinite, your, and just how infinitely valuable He is, which should result in you praising Him. Saints, it's important to know about the glory of God. Why? First, because He made you. Because we need to grow an understanding of Him. But also, because it shapes us for humility. He is God and we are not. He has done these things and we have not done these things in and of ourselves. Knowing about the glory of God will bring our often prideful hearts and heads low. Knowing about God's glory suppresses our pride. It reminds us again, He is God, we're His creatures. We must not make the same mistake of Adam, seeking our own honor and our own glory. It's it's madness, saints, to seek your own honor. It's madness to proclaim the glory of God. And you have been given a mind that now knows that. We have seen why we must esteem him greatly. That he is of infinite value and worth. And I just scratched the surface of the ways that he's revealed his goodness to us. But let us glorify him in our hearts. Let us, knowing his infinite value, treasure him above all things and esteem him more than anything. He is infinitely valuable than everything else. My wife, my kids, my job, my pursuits, uh, my hobbies, my collections. He is greater than all of these things. And he has shown his goodness by giving us these things. 
Let us not exalt the good things that God has given, given us about the one who is the giver. We esteem him in our, in our hearts. There are no idols here. And Lord God, remove them if there are. If there are any idols lingering there, Lord, let me be honest enough to say they're there and please remove them. But not just in our hearts, with our words. Let us not use his name flippantly. Let us not blaspheme his name or his eternal glory ad intra or ad extra. We must know about the glory of God. Why? Because it will cause us to glorify him, not only in our hearts, but with our hands. What we say, mouth, and what we do. Whether you're a stoneman, a carpet cleaner, in agriculture, in a doctor's office, or the doctor yourself. When you consider the glory of God, your work will be done to honor God. So that God might be esteemed. I think about our sister Hilda, who worked for years at Kaiser Permanente. For years, what was an example of what it means to be a Christian, even when there are those who are around her who claim to be Christians and are not, who took um, vacation time just so that she can come to church. And who, when it was faced with choosing something that went against her conscience and trusting that God will provide, she chose the latter. God will provide. It's honoring God because God is to be praised. God is glorious. And what has God done for her honoring God in her work and honoring God in her private life and honoring God with her heart and with her mouth and with her hands? God has given her an even better job. God has given to her an even better opportunity that doesn't stress her out anymore. Anthony only stresses her out now. God is so very good. God is so very good. Let our work be done. Not to please the boss. Not to please our co-worker. But to give honor and praise and glory to God. Pray for your elders. Pray that they would labor in such a way that the glory of God would be before our eyes when we pour over our books and over God's word. That God would be honored in our labors. And that our studies would not be just something that we put together. But it would be a labor of love for the glory of God. We must know about the glory of God. Why? Because it will cause us to glorify God in our afflictions. When you suffer, when you suffer loss, when you experience reproach, when you experience torments, you will be able to say all of this to the glory and for the glory of God, even all the way to your grave. In all things, let us be content and show gratitude for his goodness, because God has revealed his goodness in more ways since that you and I can count. Let's do that. Let's count them for a moment. Count them. God is good. He reveals his glory in that you live. In that you can see, you can taste, you can hear, you can touch, you can laugh, you can cry, you can think, you can reason. You can walk, run, sleep, wake, live in a home, drive to a home, leave that home, come to church, sit down in the church, have peace with God, have peace with your brothers. God is good in more ways than you can count, but spend this day counting the ways. 
Stop acting like life is really that bad. It's not. God is glorious. Give him glory because he's been good to you in more ways than you have stopped to think about. It's not that bad. When your eye is in view of the glory of God, all things around you become God. Thank you. And forgive me for being such a crybaby. For such a whiner. For being so ungrateful. Knowing the glory of God will cause us to see that God has revealed his goodness, which is his glory. Even in those things that we call common means of grace. But they are anything but common. Last week, I, and, and thank you, Dustin, for bringing this to my attention. Last week, I made it sound like God reveals his glory upon the senses only in times when people like Lazarus are raised from the dead and we go, whoa, the glory of God. God actually reveals his glory and goodness in the word of God, the reading, singing, and especially the preaching of the word of God, insofar as it's faithfully taught, even now. Right now, God is revealing his goodness, which is his glory, to which we should not say, well, show me Lazarus coming back from the dead, and then I'll say, whoa, God, praise be to your name. Instead, we must not take these so-called common means of grace as being just common because we experience them lightly, but rather they are the ways in which God most frequently, most commonly meets with his people and speaks to you, his people. Right here, right now, the preaching of the word of God, which Paul says, is in fact the word of God. God is revealing his glory, which is his goodness. God is right now instructing you in his word. And we must not take this moment or afternoon moment lightly. Whether the person who's preaching preaches with um, someone when I went to uh, Sentinel Reform Baptist Church, asked Pastor Jihad, does he always preach like that? You know the way that I preach. And he's, well, yes. But what do you mean? That charismatic, he, he, he mistook me for a charismatic preacher, I think, um, even though the words were, I think, orthodox. And Jihad says, everyone preaches different. Give glory to God. Amen. Because it is the word of God. God is revealing his goodness to, to you, his people, Right now through the word, when we come to the table, do not take that moment lightly. We are meeting with God. It is an unveiling of the goodness of God. God is uh, is revealing to you yet again. Sin is defeated. He's revealing to you again. I will return. And not just on a a, a, um, universal holiday. Every Sabbath day when we gather together, it is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that we celebrate. Every, Every single Sabbath. Christ is is saying every single Sabbath, I have risen. Every single Sabbath, I have risen. If the Lord does not come back this week or today, I have risen next Lord's Day Sabbath. And that's what we celebrate. Christ shall return. In our unity, in prayer, God is revealing his goodness. In our unity of fellowship, in our remembering our baptism, we must not take these manifestations of the glory of God for granted. Because in each one of them, we should say, whoa, God, you are good. I have just been confronted once again with your infinite value and your extreme, um, your, your out of this world weightiness. And let me not for one second take this moment as, as just another common moment. It is not. It is good that you know about the glory of God. 
Because it will, in closing, it will stir up your appetite for eternal glory. There is a crown of glory that awaits you. Second Timothy 4. And it is a crown that, that, that is unfading. It won't be tarnished. It won't grow old. There is a crown of glory waiting for you. By this glory, the righteous, the scriptures say, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of God. We will one day see him and be like him. Can you wait for that? Are you looking forward to that moment when you will not only see him and receive the beatific vision, but be like him? I think point one the one that we all were kind of um, out of our depths in, even including myself, should cause us to, to go back and reflect and say, but you mean I'm going to, to share in that in a fuller sense when I leave this earth? Yes. That, that perfect blessedness, I will be able to, to enjoy that. I'm enjoying it now, but in the most full sense, in eternity, yes. Glory be to God. Those who are being sanctified, you and I, will one day be glorified, Romans 8. God is making you like him. And one day you will be as he is. Hallelujah. 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 Praise the Lord. Amen. To the glory of God. Let us pray.